I'm not sure if I listen. I normally cringe if I listen to myself. I'll just let I you, understand. You, just, you, you do it. I trust you to just go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tanya Lipman, and this is another episode of Soil Matters. I'm recording this little introduction outside. I'm sitting on a lovely bench in the sun. There is a party on a boat going on just on the lake nearby where I'm sitting. So you might be able to hear that in the background and I apologize if that's disturbing at all. Um, But yeah, this podcast is a little get together as some of you might know, to talk about all things soil and environment. And we often invite soily guests onto the show to discuss various soily topics. In this episode, I interviewed Angela Gallagosala and we discussed her peatland research. And this episode is being released to celebrate International Bog Day which is on the 24th of July this year, 2022. Uh, And before we go further, I respectfully acknowledge all Indigenous peoples connected to the soils and lands across this planet. And I pay particular respect to the Elders past, present and emerging that are, have been or will be caretakers of peatlands, bogs, fens and other wetlands. Angela is a professor at the University of Exeter and is a specialist in peatlands, which and peatlands are a carbon-rich ecosystem, a wet ecosystem where dead plant material or organic matter is not given the opportunity to decompose. For this reason, peatlands store large amounts of carbon and have a role regulating regulating the earth's climate. Peatland ecosystems are the most efficient carbon sinks in the world, which means peatlands store carbon and carbon-containing substances for long periods of time. Peatlands and their surrounding plant life work to trap the carbon dioxide released by the decomposing peat. This ecosystem covers approximately 3% of the world's land area, yet holds an estimated 30% of the world's carbon content. Peatlands are found all over the globe and have been recorded in 175 countries. Of the 1.5 million square miles of global peatland, approximately 200,000 square miles are located in Europe. Angela is also a member and organiser of CPEAT, an international consortium of peatland scientists, and also contributes to PAGES, an international paleoclimate research working group. I saw that um, you did your Bachelor of Science in Madrid. Yeah, Yeah. Spanish, yeah. Yeah, and so did you grow up nearby Madrid or? No, I grew up on the coast, so on the southeast of Spain, so mm-hmm. the Mediterranean area. Beautiful. So, yeah, I'm a Mediterranean baby. I learned to swim before I could walk. Um, 
So I'm a very watery baby, but you know, peatlands <laughs> therefore fulfill, <laughs> you know. And also actually somebody pointed out to me, like we were in Scotland and, you know, uh, kind of overlooking lots of peatlands, you know, the vegetation. And they said, actually this, this um, landscape is not that dissimilar to some of the Mediterranean landscapes where, you know, there is forested landscapes, but there is also kind of low vegetation landscapes where, you know, the vegetation is stressed due to water, you know, well, water limitations. And in Scotland, they are limited, you know, there's too much water and therefore, you know, there is no forests. But those two things, you know, when you look at them from a distance, actually, they can be a kind of similar. So there's a kind of similarity, a kind of familiarity in the landscape. Um, but yeah, who would have said to me, you know, when I was a child that I would end up, you know, studying these wet ecosystems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I feel the same. But I- um, did Where you, are where you you're... from? You're from Sydney? Yeah, from, yeah, sort of the outskirts of Sydney. Yeah. Where, where? Maybe I remember. Oh, <laughs> I grew up uh, in in Penrith. Um, okay. So it's on the base of the Blue Mountains. Ah, yes. Yeah, ah, yeah. Sort of this mountains. border between the Blue Mountains and Sydney a bit. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really nice. So I kind of spent, yeah, probably my upbringing either traveling into the Blue Mountains more or into like Sydney and the city nice. a bit more, which was, yeah, really, really nice. I definitely really enjoyed um, once I like me and my friends turned 16 and then we could drive into the Blue Mountains a lot. And then we, <laughs> did, yeah, we kind of started this um, like nighttime bushwalking group where we oh, would wow. just leave at whatever time in the evening and then walk like through the night, like these really long walks. Um, nice. And then it would just be empty. And especially mm. when the moon was out, this was really beautiful. Wow, um, that yeah, sounds amazing. So, yeah, yeah, and I have fond memories of it because it's kind of not something I probably will do again, or I can't imagine <laughs> how to be like, hey, do you want to go for this nighttime bushwalk? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I quite like the sound of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well, I'll ask you then. <laughs> yeah, I also, you know, when I was young, I had a lot of kind of contact with nature. So I, I, you know, I lived on the Mediterranean coast where it's very built up, but as soon as you move inland, there is mountains, quite high mountains, and you can just walk and you don't see anybody. So you can get away from people, you know, mm. um, and, you know, I've, I've done a lot of that, a lot of cycling, you know, to the mountains and then walking, you know, in the mountains and, and things like that. So were your parents also very interested in nature or environment or science? So, um, not my dad, <laughs> but my mom, she's a pharmacist mm -hmm. and she also had a kind of upbringing that was kind of in the natural world, you know, uh, the sea, the kind of, and she loves plants and looking at plants so when I was a child she used to tell me the names of the plants um so I think that was probably a big thing for me but also in general all of my brothers like I have older brothers and they were all um 
you know, interested in the outdoors, you know, sailing, walking. And and so I think, yeah, which I think I probably, you know, was kind of inspired by them. But yeah, I can't think of a life without being outdoor, really. You think it influenced or like motivated you to want to understand the processes behind like yeah. the natural world a bit more? It's interesting, you know, because I could... I could tell myself a really beautiful story about how I've ended up here because I think it really suits me. Like it really suits who I am, like really suits who I am. In what way? In the way that, you know, I'm outdoors. Like Mm. I, I'm understanding the natural system. You know, I'm, I'm sort of happy in all aspects of my work. It really suits me, but I have not, I was not, or never aware of having the ambition to become what I have become. Like I never had a great plan. I've kind of just gone around, you know, this sounds interesting, I'll do this, you know, I'll do this. You know, I've never had, I know this, like in interviews now, they ask you, you know, I don't know about your ambition for your next five years or 10 years, you know, I've never had that. I've never had a vision like that. You know, I've never had, but I've ended up doing something that I really like. So I must have had the ambition. I must have had the vision in my head, um, but just not being very aware of it, I think. Mm. Yeah, you know, maybe... it, I can't. I can't think that it's coincidental that I've ended up kind of doing what I love. You know what I mean? That I studied chemistry and I was doing a lot of lab work and I could mm. have ended up in the lab, but I think that would have made me so unhappy. Yeah. Well, I think it sounds like you've got a really great intuition um, and feeling for like your sense of self and um, some kind of like security in being able to follow that. But, um, yeah, but it's interesting because I had no awareness, like I had no great plan, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so then what, so you did chemistry in your bachelor, in your undergraduate, and then, and then what happened after that? You're in the lab. I was in the lab. I came, <laughs> I came to the UK and I did a master's on even more kind of obscure stuff. So I did physical chemistry. And when I arrived in the UK, I arrived as an exchange student, as an Erasmus, but I did mm-hmm. a master's. Erasmus, yeah. Because in Spain, the undergrad is five years. So the kind of two last years are kind of quite high level. And I came on my... Um, fifth year so I was you know I had already four years of study so when I arrived here they offered me to join the master's instead of the undergraduate program so I joined the master's and you know then I was doing synchrotron radiation so looking at structure of minerals with synchrotron radiation right yeah which is your first paper (laughs) I think I I was like is is this an error in your google scholar like (laughs) it was yeah (laughs) You know, that is like, I spent two weeks in the synchrotron here in the UK, under the ground, no windows, you know, day and night in front of my computer. Looking at calcium titanite. Yeah, calcium titanite. You know, it was kind of interesting, like it was fun. It was a really peculiar kind of world. 
so I'm glad I did it. But I would have been so unhappy. Imagine, you know, if I hadn't enough doing something like that. Yeah. Um, or you work in a windowless, windowless room, like for your I, whole career. I, I mean, even in a laboratory with a window, I just, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a chemist, so I love it, you know, but I, I need to be outdoors. So I think that, yeah, somehow I ended up doing something, you know, and I love the carbon cycle. I, do, I can't imagine not studying the carbon cycle now. <laughs> okay, so you know, what happened? So then you were doing your, your windowless masters. <laughs> and then <laughs> did you have to go back to Madrid or when did you discover peatlands? So then I did my master's and I, I stayed on because, you know, my, basically my supervisor had funds and I stayed over a little bit longer to write up that. And then um, I was kind of thinking about going back to Spain, but the situation in Spain was pretty bad for scientists. Mm. So and I was maybe thinking, well, maybe I can find, yeah, it's very, very hard in Spain. I mean, it still is. Yeah. Uh, but certainly when I finished, it was difficult. I thought, well, maybe I can find something here. I started looking, you know, I worked for a while um, in the ICPMS facility at Silwood Park in Imperial, um, like as a technician. And I was kind of looking. Um, eventually, I didn't actually do my PhD straight away. Eventually, I got a position teaching in Canterbury. So you see, I've I've kind of like just gone around like that. Like I haven't had, this is what I mean that I haven't had like a kind of clear path of what I wanted to do. You know, there were loads of things that interested me and mm. I had no idea which of them I wanted to do really. Um, so I started teaching in Canterbury in, in uh, Christchurch at the time it was a university college and I started teaching um what were you teaching I was teaching chemistry okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I really enjoyed teaching I really enjoyed the interaction with the students you know I was pretty happy but it got to a point where I realized if I wanted to stay you know in academia I needed a PhD so I started looking at PhDs and there were several, you know, that I looked at quite a lot of things, different things, like, I don't know, renewable energies, you know, but through chemical or biochemical stuff, or you know, I looked at loads of different things. But in the end, this one up came up with um, peatlands and carbon cycling, methane. I thought, well, that sounds interesting, you know, and there was, I remember, in the PhD advert, there was this thing where you were going to go to Siberia. And I thought, I'd like to go to Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I can apply. So I applied and I got it. Um, I don't know why I got it, but I did. Um, and did you go to Siberia? No. <laughs> oh, no! I was about to ask you which the... station you were at. <laughs> it was really Shame. funny. So uh, there was a funny story about that. So a guy, my my supervisor had a contact in in Russia, and I was gonna go with them, like yeah. to Siberia. They sent somebody to the UK instead. Well, instead, no, first, and then yeah. I was gonna go out there. The guy came, and then 
he disappeared. So I couldn't go. So instead, right. I, I met a really nice professor in Finland in one conference, mm-hmm. Petty Matikainen, and I invited myself to come and see him and do some work with him. Mm-hmm. Basically, Fantastic. I invited myself. Like it was quite, and he was so kind. He was You're like, like, I booked a flight. I'll be no, there. On no, Tuesday. no, no. I said, <laughs> you know, my work in Siberia has fallen through, and I wondered if you may like host me and he was like yeah come around I'll show you around we can do film work you know it was so nice fantastic (laughs) and so is it during your PhD that you started working on Pete Stash or did that come later no it came later on my on my um, PhD I'm ashamed to say I didn't publish any of the things that I worked on I still hope to publish one paper one day good luck but I think it's really I hope you make Um, okay, well, I want to say that's okay. As um, I'm well at the end of my PhD now. Yeah, where and, are you now? Yeah, I, I hope to finish. Um, so my extension runs out in October. So I hope to finish my final paper at that point and then put it together into a thesis. Um, so yeah, around the end of the year, I hope to cut more or less have things together mm-hmm. fingers right. crossed fingers yes. crossed um so that's where I am and what was I asking you oh well I wanted to say that's kind of inspiring actually <laughs> that you didn't publish anything because you've made it anyways and I think from my position it feels sort of like I have to get these uh, papers published otherwise I can't get my next job and then uh, I won't be uh, everything's just going to fall apart I will have done this PhD for nothing and um (laughs) (laughs) so I sort of have this feeling like on my shoulders so it's kind of really interesting then to hear yeah you didn't end up publishing that work you managed to get another job after that and several other positions after that yeah and I tell you I think I do have like a little star like looking out for me or something because I um I was looking for people to read my thesis my supervisor was very busy at the time and he was not giving me a lot of comments on my thesis and I wanted somebody to read it because I hadn't published anything so it was all I was writing from scratch and I was writing everything and I was just looking for people to read it so I was asking people please please will you read one chapter you know I was quite like nerve-wracking and it was difficult for me to do that you know but yeah. I was just asking people I didn't know please please would you write will you read one of my chapters actually one of those people was Colin Prentice mm-hmm. he read my chapter and he loved it <laughs> and he gave me a job after he said come and work with me in Australia well initially oh, no. in the UK right right right, right yeah wow fantastic so I think, you know, these things are, I mean, I could write, obviously, you know, I wrote a thesis. I love writing anyway. I love writing. I could write. It was just that at the time, you know, I think the English system, I think now, like, I would not tell any of my students not to write papers, right? <laughs> at the time, I think my supervisor didn't make any particular kind of stress that I should be writing so I just just wrote my thesis you know (laughs) yeah well I think in Australia there's um it's maybe probably 
growing now, the push to publish some things during your PhD. But okay, so I went and I did my honors there, like a sh yeah, like a shortcut to a, it's like a short master's that shortcuts you to a PhD. Okay, um, it's very great and. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a one-year research project that you can do at the end of your undergraduate bachelor degree. If you do well in your like science bachelor degree, you can do this one-year thesis, which is then, yeah, yeah, a one-year research thesis. So it's a lot very research focused. And if you do well in that, then you can begin a PhD oh, wow. without doing a master's. Okay. So yeah. And so, did you on peatlands already? No, I did not do it on peatlands. No, I uh, I did it on climate extremes. So oh, wow. I did it. It was I looked at um, a paleoclimate model and then with different um, forcings. So with and without volcanic eruptions, or with and without um, you know with different orbital forcings, or with um, uh, with and without anthropogenic CO two. Um, and looked at how the, yeah, the really hot and really cold, like extremes changed. So yeah, extreme temperature events, how these were then changing just over the last thousand years. Um, okay. So that's what I did. So I made a bit of a jump. And then after that, I also, when I finished that thesis, I had a great time actually really doing my thesis and working in the research center and I loved it, but I also felt I can really relate to some things that you said, like I could really go in a few different directions. I really wasn't sure exactly what direction to head in. And I just sort of had this idea, like I want to kind of continue what I'm doing, but I don't really know in which direction to go in. And then I was very lucky that I managed to then have a part-time job in this as, as a research assistant in the same research center. So I did that yeah, more or less for another year. Um, and then, and then that was actually kind of very boring work. I was writing this quality control software for a data set. <laughs> In <But> Fortran. Useful, <laughs> useful, useful. Yes, useful. And um, I got to stay in the research center and um, I yeah really was able to develop my programming skills and um, and then after that I got another like part-time job but then in the biology department so I had been in like the climate change research mm -hmm. group and then I moved to like biology and ecosystems and then they were looking then I was in a research team that were they were looking at wetlands okay. and how um, the vegetation changed in wetlands um post like flooding events and over the long term okay um because okay. in australia yeah obviously we've or everywhere pretty much where humans have inhabited have modified the hydrology and the river systems and flooding is not occurring at the same intervals as it would otherwise and there was this hypothesis that this was causing basically certain plants certain vegetation to dominate and other times types of vegetation to slowly become extinct mm. and so I was then I was also just a research assistant so I didn't have my own project I was just helping in the field helping nice. maybe with some figures helping with this helping with that um, so that was really nice 
and yeah and then the government changed and then we got a very conservative government and then it was kind of in the news like hundreds of people in the bureau of meteorology in other types of environmental research like were made redundant kind of overnight and of course like my funding was one of the first to be like <laughs> slashed <laughs> so that was that <laughs> and then I looked for a PhD <laughs> okay. and you went then to the Netherlands is the Netherlands where you are yeah yeah so then I was yeah also not really sure still and looked at a few different PhDs Um, but I did want to go overseas. I felt like I really wanted to have that experience and give it a go. So I was, yeah, looking overseas and somehow ended up, yeah, in this PhD looking at peatlands <laughs> in the yeah, Netherlands. Somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. And now you love them or not? Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. I really love them. I really yeah. love um they're kind of like I feel like this in-between ecosystem and I find that really fascinating and I also really love their link to the carbon and climate um cycle or yeah know, yeah so um yeah. yeah I think I think they have something because they fascinate lots of people don't they like I think it's interesting because it's it's hard sometimes to say why we love them so much Um, but yeah, I also love the, the, their link to climate and also, you know, to water cycles and so on, you know, like, but in, it's particularly to climate through the carbon. But yeah, I mean, I do love them in all ways, you know, I kind of love the, I love being in a peatland. I just yeah. love <laughs> Yeah, they're kind of a mysterious ecosystem. <laughs> They're tough, you know, they're not easy to walk on, never, you know, they're always <laughs> difficult. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very sensitive, but also in another way, very resilient. Yeah. And they like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, kind mm. of like heavily impacted and, and at the same time, you know, in some instances, like the, so, so heavily impacted in some places and really kind of their last bits of wilderness in other areas because they are the kind of harder to get into you know because they're so wet yeah I, I like all of that about them yeah and the more I visit different ones you know the more I fall in love the fact that they're so different like there's so many you know we talk about peelings but I don't know you could be talking about you know 10 different ecosystems I don't know like they're so different yeah um anyway But it's, it's good. So you've ended up doing a PhD on peatlands. And what, yeah. what do you think you'll do next? I would, though, I think my PhD has been like, yeah, it was also looking at a plot scale model and developing a new version. So I incorporated plant functional types into an existing model. So basically sort of built an above ground oh, kind nice. of layer. Um, I think. In which model? It's um, it's called the Peatland VU model. So it was developed by my supervisor here at the VU, and um, so and now there's like more and more. There's a few 
people now um in a well yeah group working on the model so that's really exciting like when I started it was I think no one had worked on it in a while and it was just me picking it up but now there's a couple of other people so that's really fantastic nice yeah really really nice um and I guess I hope to go a bit more into the broader scale processes still including with peatlands but looking more at the broader scale than at a very site specific mm-hmm. example mm-hmm. um yeah and I think anything in that direction whether that be to do with using data or to do or more modeling um then I'd be yeah really interested and happy and open to that tell me a bit about like how did you like form the research questions like okay yeah like what was like missing that made you then what was missing in like the research or where did you see like these holes that you were like I'm going in this direction or maybe you saw something really promising and you were like oh let's follow that maybe yeah yeah. so I think that um some of the projects that I'm involved in are very collaborative so the the ideas kind of come from a group and it's difficult to say who had the ideas like you know their ideas you know some of them have come from previous projects well a lot of the things have come from previous projects and you kind of think oh this is really interesting you know I'd like to know where it's taking you know what does this mean in this context Mm. or in this other context and when you talk about these ideas do are they like ongoing discussions that are coming back and back or is it like a light bulb moment I think, well, I think it's interesting because I find, for example, I'm going to give you an example. Um, I have an Arctic project. It's been ongoing for about, I don't know, three years, three or four years. It's it's had an extension because of COVID. So I'm going to Canada, you know, to the Arctic in like a few days. Anyway, uh, that project, the ideas came from the millipede project that is the previous neck project um, you know but it was developed really by a group of us so not only by me even though I'm leading it um, it's the ideas really come from a group of people and you know is this idea of um, you know we think from the paleo record that um, carbon accumulation is increasing during you know when when you warm north like high latitudes you warm them and they accumulate more so what's going to happen on the northern edge you know of the distribution are we going to see peatlands moving northwards like all biomes in in theory are moving polewards are peatlands also moving polewards are we going to see an increase in carbon accumulation you know in the in general both because of expansion of these peatlands and also because they vertically they are going to accumulate more and that's the question on this project. You know, it's exciting. We are kind of at the edges, you know, of what's happening. And there is a lot of evidence that suggests, you know, that the a lot of carbon is going to be released in, in high Arctic or in Arctic systems. But if they're wet enough, maybe not. Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I get, yeah, for example, like the area between the UK and the Netherlands was a big peatland um, and then was flooded and as it flooded the landscapes on either side like the UK and the Netherlands then slowly became 
more and more PT. Um, so I guess, yeah, with sea level rise and the warming, it's in these maybe perhaps certain areas where it will kind of flood at a certain rate. Um, yeah, you know, or, or even that they're going to become wetter because the precipitation is going to increase. Yes, yeah, and maybe flooding isn't the right word, but yeah, but could be no, no, also yeah. impacted by the groundwater or yeah. river yeah, exactly. or, yeah. They yeah. become saturated areas. Mm. So that's our question. And it's exciting to be asking those questions, you know, because it's really kind of challenging a little bit of what we think is going to happen. But also, you know, it's, a it's a, also a message of hope, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So is that a modeling study? Well, or? it has a modeling, it had a modeling component, but we yeah. are kind of like it has you're making it had a modeling component, but we are not, I don't think we're going to get there with the time we have, but it has yeah. a satellite, drone satellite, mm. and then, you know, a paleo. So we are looking to see if, you know, we do transects uh, on the edges and we see the peatland has expanded and we look at vertical accumulation, but also we look at satellite data and we ground truth with drone data, you know, to see if we can see in the, you know, in the, in the very recent past, the last 30 years or less, whether there's been expansion, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. an increase in the in the inputs to the system, you know. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, it's exciting. We've just been looking at some ground penetrating radar for some of the sites. We have ground penetrating radar, and there are lots of exciting stuff like to look at. Like, yeah, because I imagine peatlands must be. Yeah, I don't know. Have any experience with it myself? Must be very difficult to look at from satellite data because of the flooding and if there's too much water you're getting very little information back yeah just and that there's very, water there yeah and it's much. very difficult to know where they are because you know because they're, they're tricky I think they're tricky I mean there's lots of efforts and I think that's one of the next questions you know not not for me because I'm not an expert on that but that's one of the kind of next things you know we don't really understand where they really are and that in that kind of um francisca is calling me but i don't know who she is <laughs> do you see that no no okay in your zoom in your zoom Something? Mm. yeah it looks like it what's ah, this oh no hello. in jeans oh um uh, sorry francisca um, yeah francisca. hello Angela. hi um, i've got i've got a, a staff here um that is relatively new uh, mr ramirez and i'm just trying to get him a verification of reference so that he can have a tendency with you know he can ah, yes. move out of the hotel francisca so, i'm really sorry i mean another meeting actually i didn't mean to actually come into this meeting yeah, <laughs> so sorry so i'm sorry about that but it is you that would give him that yeah is it is it me can i do that i was told that the line manager does that yeah that's fine i can do that i can do that yeah. then That would be brilliant. If you okay. could email that to him a reference that he's working for you, that would be yeah. fabulous. Okay, I can do Thank that. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> very much. All right. Sorry about that. That's all right. Bye. That's all right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, what were we saying? We were saying about, yeah, we I don't think know one of the are. next big questions yeah. is what really drives like Pitland Inception you know, where they are, you know, what finally drives where people, peatlands are all over the world, I think. 
And it's hmm. hard because we don't know where they really are. Like we don't have good maps. Like for example, I have um, a student that is visiting from China. She's working on the Tibetan plateau peatlands. The maps are rubbish, absolutely rubbish. Like really, really bad. Like it's hmm. ridiculously bad. <laughs> Um, so it's hard to know from satellite where they are. Um, so that's, you need a lot of ground truthing, I think. Yeah. That. And I guess a lot of the existing maps, even if they, we do know there's a peatland there, it's not specifically then including the size or the depths or the age. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah so a lot of this is very vague. It could be 10 square meters or but even just 100 map, square kilometers but even just having a good map would give us a lot of information i think but we don't have a good map like you know Gombridge, that did this map of tropical peatlands there's lots of um false positives false mm. negatives you know mm. because because there is a lot of ground truthing work that still needs to happen i think and, you know, so you can have kind of vague maps of where they more or less are, but, you know, really good maps of where they really are, we don't have yet. So that's, I think, one thing, for example, that is still missing. And I think lots of people are working towards it. So hopefully we'll make progress. Yeah. But that's exciting. Do you think then the, out, the ideal output would then be some kind of gridded, map or at a certain resolution with yeah, perhaps exactly. some different exactly. I mean there is variables. there is a new a new map was released at the COP26 a new peatland map global peatland map but I think it still has the same issues you know it's a good map but it still has the same issues that we have you know that is not good enough in certain areas where we don't have data we don't that know. are hard to access yeah like i guess particularly siberia and russia for quite some time there's not going to be a lot of field work going on there <laughs> <laughs> some of my colleagues were planned to go to the field this summer and All right. um and and last summer and the summer before that but oh. for yeah first oh, yeah. for covid and now for the oh. tension between ukraine and russia i know um, it's, I yeah. think in Russia, actually, there is a lot of data that we don't have access to because it's in Russian publication. Yeah, well. and perhaps they're quite concerned about sharing it in its raw format, but perhaps if it could be combined with other data and not in its raw format, but something in more like a gridded product or something yeah. that's been refined, yeah. then maybe they are more open to that. That's what I see Um in some products that then they won't release the original station data, but then you can have it if it's been perhaps like some statistics made out of it or, so, yeah, or something. Which is, yeah, which is something, which is something. something. Yeah, I don't know, like that's, yeah. But in terms of ideas, I guess a lot of, now that I think of it, a lot of the ideas come from previous work where you have found something interesting and you think, oh, but, you know, we can do this. Like, for example, for the for the ERC consolidator in the tropics, for the for the grant in the tropics, there's so much to be done that any idea that you have, I think, is good. You know, there's just there's not a lot of work that has been done. So everything is still to be done. So yeah. 
And so you're collaborating with local, in, are you collaborating with local institutes there? Yeah. And which countries are they based in? So um, I have a very good collaboration in Colombia. So for the Amazon basin, we, I work with Colombian partners, very strong partners. Then in DRC, I have also DRC, well, uh, Congo, and then in Uganda. So I, I work with local um, universities there. And then in Southeast Asia, uh, one is in Sumatra because there is the April Tower. So I work with April. It's, it's um, not a university, but a, a company. But mm -hmm. they have this part of the company is looking at, well, monitoring um, carbon exchange. And one of the towers is in a pristine peatland. So we're going to use that data. And then the last country in Southeast Asia, it was Malaysia, but our plans have changed because the Edge Coverance Tower basically broke in two we can't use it and now I'm thinking that maybe we will try and explore Papua New Guinea because it's one of the few places where there may be like pristine peatlands oh so in Southeast Asia so yeah going there so yeah. yeah yeah but I don't have yet the contacts there so I'm trying to develop the contacts there but I try you know more and more like what we are saying about not traveling and about, you know, um, kind of the inequalities in science, like more and more, I want to apply for grants that allow part of the money to be elsewhere, you know, to have true collaborations where actually the partners are involved in the managing of the grants and in like heavily involved in the development of the grants and so mm -hmm. on, you know, that I'm more and more keen to kind of uh, build capacity and build possibilities out there where it's much harder to get funding for. Yeah. And okay, to go back to this um, question, I'm always fascinated by this question of how to take like the knowledge from science that, that you have and then to uh, use it for political purposes to give a political message but to maintain your scientific integrity and I guess I think this has been um, a real hurdle for a lot of people in the scientific community that there this fear that their scientific integrity won't be maintained if they use their knowledge for a political purpose um, stops them from from speaking in certain um, communities it's yeah and yeah how can, what do you think how can you manage that that you feel safe that a scientist feels safe to to use their knowledge in a political context it's a very good question um i use it politically in my teaching i guess um that's one way um I work with artists as well. I really like working with artists and I think they're really good at um, transmitting information in a way that is very effective at touching people. Um, um, in terms of real like political, like direct political impacts, I have colleagues that work like for example in DEFRA, like they work part-time in DEFRA and they advise the UK, DEFRA is the, the UK, well, they kind of advise the UK government direct yeah. on okay. issues. But it's not a government department. 
it's a government department. it is a government department, so yeah. they they kind of like what you know i have some colleagues here in the uk that would be very heavily involved you know i have several colleagues they're amazing you know and they they do an amazing work um but there are other things for example you know for me like i see the drc the congo and the expanse of wetlands that they have the peatlands and all of the problems they have you know it's a very it's a tough country to work in because there is a lot of poverty and uh, a lot of wealth, a lot of wealth, like they have a lot of mines, a lot of the things that are using, I, I, you know, we use for our mobile phones come from DRC. So there's a lot of wealth, diamonds, gold, you know, minerals. Yeah, but it's really a country that over the years has been sort of, ravaged for like different minerals and different resources over the years that, and different countries have come in and had a big presence there and then left again and another country comes in and has a presence and sets up but a lot of mines a lot of again. instability and violence is created around those mines and in that context you know i mean well peatlands might seem like um you know you have you got you have bigger fish to fry <laughs> But, you know, these are, you know, it's not just the peatlands, but it's just the forest. If you think about the enormity of that forest, like it's comparable to the Amazon. I mean, it's smaller, but it it is called the second lung of the world. And if you think about what's happening there, for example, you know, so I was really touched when I went to that, to DRC. I was, I really felt that, um somehow I have a duty to do something like even if it's a very small thing in order to try and preserve that forest you know it, who am I to think that I can do something about that right when there is like loads of big kind of non-governmental organizations trying to do things I'm sure but I still felt you know I can't possibly see what's happening, you know, these people are starving. They're basically uh, burning the forest because they need to eat. Like their traditional ways of um, feeding themselves were through hunting and fishing. But, you know, there's no animals left in the forests around those communities anymore because the pressure of population is too large. So, you know, I. I, I just don't feel I can let that forest go up in flames and remain, you know, I, I, my kind of heart was breaking because I saw they burn, you know, they burn these enormous primary forest trees, you know, enormous trees just on the ground, you know, just think. <laughs> and I think we have a, we have, you know, we have a duty to find ways of feeding them that means that the forest doesn't go up in flames. Yeah. Distributing so I, the wealth, distributing the power more what, equally what between yeah. the north what, and south, the yeah, east know, and like, west. Surely you don't want to have a phone that is contributing to the destruction of your own lung, you know? Well, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. So I don't know. I think that 
you know, for me, this year has been a very strong year. Well, this year, like the past year, rather than this year since January, you know, the past year has been a really strong year. I went to COP26 is the first time I went to COP. I was really, truly disappointed in my heart of hearts. <laughs> by the outcome, by the discussions, or? By the whole setup. I felt, you know, we had a peatland pavilion. That was a yeah. really exciting thing. But... I just really felt strongly that the wrong people were sat at the table and um, the decisions that were made were disappointing because they were not ambitious enough. I mean, these are the things that we should have been doing 30 years ago, not now. Like now is not the time to say, we'll decrease anything by a third, you know, by just burning the leaks that shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, and was it India that um, made this final change at the end? Uh, no, yeah, so deforestation stopping, stopping deforestation by 2035, there will be no forest left by 2035. You know, what, what's that? Stopping deforestation in 2035. <laughs> it's just, it's nothing makes sense. So I don't know, I feel there is something to be done. So I, I do think a lot about what I can do as an individual, you know, and Let's say on one hand, you feel small, like what can you do? But on the other hand, well, if everybody feels that nothing can be done, then nothing will be done. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. So for me, you know, there is a kind of like I want, I want to do something like I want to maybe allow scientists in DRC to have the knowledge to be able to impact their own government. I mean, the government is very, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a government that has a lot of presence uh, at all, but, you know, I don't know, like surely they have the power to change their own countries, right? So like, I don't know, for me, maybe it's through contact. Have the potential. With, yeah. I don't know, like it should be the way they should be changing, you know, but we should help them because this is not just their forest. You know, this is our forest. Mm. I think this is the thing. It's not just, you know, it's not just about them. Um, and I think that's another thing that was disappointing in COP, that in a way it's very difficult. You realize it's very difficult to agree anything transboundary. You know, everybody wants to do what's good for their own country without thinking that actually, if we don't save the Amazon and if we don't save the Congo Basin forests, then we're doomed anyway, even if you do the right thing in your country, right? So it's not about my country, it's about the world's survival, I think. I, think I don't know. Yeah. I I'm an optimist by nature, and uh, don't get me wrong. I'm an optimist by nature. And even I am disappointed. I was disappointed. So <laughs> yeah, I heard a lot of disappointment. And um, yeah, I mean, I felt mixed feelings, like everything yeah. that happened, I mean, not everything, there were many steps forward. Yeah. But like you say, they're just too small, too late. Yeah, um, but I, I was like, absolutely, you know, I was also excited, you know, it's the first time that we have a pillion. Pillions were very present. So for me, all those things were successful stories. And I think, you know, um, the people that organized the Pitland Pavilion 
have, you know, it's amazing all the work they've done to raise their profile. And I think, you know, colleagues, you know, that have been very political have done amazing, an amazing job at raising peatlands profiles. You know, yeah. I, I really feel there is a change since I started till now. You know, when I went into that ERC interview for the project, I went in thinking I'm going to win this for peatlands, you know, because we need this, you know, and I was kind of like ready to defend peatlands because I thought they were going to ask me, why on earth do you want to study peatlands? Yeah, <laughs> that silly little ecosystem. But nobody, I had the feeling everybody was convinced that the project was wor worthwhile already before I started talking. It's a very big difference to how it was before very big difference so I think all of these things are great they're amazing you know and they're positive things and and it's exciting that that's happening I think I um there are a lot of critiques to the EU of course the European Union but um I feel it does enable some of this trans boundary agreement do you think like that there would be possibility of other sort of bodies like the EU around the globe? Big question, way a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe in an environmental sense, maybe not necessarily yeah. like think, full political. Yeah, economic. but don't you think that science is transboundary like that? Yeah. That we actually feel like a family, no matter who the other scientist is and where they come from and, you know, like Definitely. I feel science I think there's, is that. Yeah, I think, and I think like working groups like um, CPEAT and then PAGES as a whole and all the different working groups within PAGES and there's the FluxNet community and within that there's AmeriFlux, there's AsiaFlux, there's OzFlux, um, that these create all their own smaller communities, which also then feed into a bigger community. And yeah, yeah I think actually science is or yeah, sometimes it's a negative, like how international it is because of this constant moving or, well, yeah, my big fear is like, yeah, having like a 22 year postdocs or something. Um, so there's that side, but then I think a real strength is, yeah, that this collaboration and- um, And we understand that our objectives are the same yeah. And it doesn't matter whether I'm Chinese or I am, you know, Congolese, we're kind of working towards the same aims and we are progressing together. And, and I think that's what's needed in a way. And how does that, you know, how does it, how can we do political stuff that is like that? I don't know. I don't know. I, Yeah, I don't know. You know, I was, I'm always hopeful when I travel to Amazonia and I hear the local people, how the local people relate to their environment, how they value it, um, how they relate to it. I always come back hopeful about the world. Um, um, In the UK that you lose hope. <laughs> Now there are lots of good things happening in the UK as well. Although it is, you know, it's been a hard time, I think, with COVID, Brexit, blah, blah, yeah. blah. You know, it's, it's a hard time in the UK, I think. But there are lots of 
really good things happening. A lot of people trying to find alternative ways of living, for example. I think because it is a kind of, um, you know, a very mainstream society, you know, like, like in the States or here, you know, very capitalist, you know, kind of, because it is that, where there is the streams, there's also, I think, the movements that want to change it and want to find other ways of living. So I think, yes. Um, yeah, like Bristol is, you know, an example of that. It's kind of loads of people trying to find alternative ways of um, living, I think. In the Peatland Pavilion, did you manage um, to meet anyone from Repeat? The from where repeat the organization no I, okay. uh, but i have spoken to them though i uh -huh. they're really nice and yeah. um they asked me to do a little video i can't remember if they used it and i've been to some of their meetings it's oh, a really wonderful. nice yeah, yeah 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 i was more so involved with them probably yeah kind of uh just before covid and then through the first half but then I, I kind of got too busy, so I dropped out a bit. But um, yeah, they're a really nice group. They're somewhat based in Amsterdam, so that's been yeah. really nice. Yeah, they're a fantastic group, and yeah, they're I'm really, really happy to. Great. Yeah. I tried to actually get them to cop with us because I had a project with some dancers, like a, a, an art project uh -huh. with dancers, and I some of they were gonna do some of the music scores mm. for us, but it didn't. We didn't get the funding. We tried several times to get the funding. We didn't get the funding okay yeah. um but yes I really like them yeah they're um, a great group very inspiring very very yeah. inspiring yeah it's really good to yeah to see that but you see all of those things are really hopeful like I think there's loads of you know those grassroots the problem with for example in Congo is you are not going to have a grassroots movement because people are still too busy just surviving yeah fair enough exactly so yeah i don't know it's tough hmm. but um it's been really inspiring to talk to you today and i didn't expect it to be so political at all <laughs> i thought we were going to really talk about peatland processes <laughs> <laughs> which we also did another uh, time we can talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I got to hear, um, I think, your opinion on how you think peatlands will broadly respond to climate change, which I was really curious. That was one of my questions to ask you. So, yeah, um, we touched um, on that uh, yeah. inadvertently. I didn't I didn't tell you about tropical peatlands because I think tropical peatlands might suffer a little bit more with climate change. But, you know, it's still resilient, I hope. Mm -hmm. All right. But um, yeah, some of the um, suggestions is that the sinks are slowing down for forest, tropical forest in general. Is it because um, of the management or because of um, the climate changes in rainfall? Well, management definitely has a big impact, right? Um, so that's, but apart from that, in intact forests, they are seeing a slowing down of the sink and I think it's related to um, maybe changing hydrological conditions mm -hmm. in the tropics. 
and that of course is going to affect peatlands as well so but i think watch this space there is lots of new work going on in the in the tropical peatlands so i think we'll need to wait to see what what comes out of that but yeah yeah, yeah but because... even more of a you know more important that we make sure that we are managing them correctly you know if they're going to suffer more so yeah from what i understand it's really like during these intense periods of variability that then there's a big methane flux which is obviously a large loss of carbon so and i guess and that's one thing that we understand about future climate change is that the precipitation will become a lot more variable the net precipitation might even stay the same but yes um become exactly. more variable and for exactly. peatlands this could yeah yeah perhaps swing it to, yeah. yeah exactly and the distribution of that rain in the year i was just chatting to andy bird the other just yesterday actually we were chatting about tropical peatlands and you know some of the work they are doing on the Congo peat suggests that, you know, this is another project that, you know, the variability in that rain during the year is very important for the eventual sink, you know, how big that sink is. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Like the net budget at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for listening to this episode where I interviewed Angela Gallagher-Sala discussing her research on peatlands. If you're interested to learn more about Angela or to connect with her, I encourage you to look, um, to Google her or to, I will put her link, um, to her, a link to her work um, in the footnotes, in the episode notes of this podcast. So feel free to um, get in touch with her or just look at the work that she's done. It's, she's done some fascinating and very inspiring work. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please feel very welcome to follow on Instagram, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And of course, I would really love to receive a message or a review or any other form of communication, such as a suggestion or a question from you. Um, and I hope you can get out and enjoy a fen or a bog or a wetland or other type of peatland really soon. Thanks, guys. See you next time.